We are going to continue our study in the book of Revelation. And uh, uh, this, this book is, is daunting, uh, no doubt about it. But I can assure you that after a few weeks, you're going to start to see a picture. In fact, that's what's supposed to happen. You're supposed to see something when you look and read through the book of Revelation. Now, I do want to uh, encourage you as we open the scriptures uh, uh, not to read along. I'm only asking you to do this this one time. Don't read along in the text. The text is printed in your bulletin. Many of you maybe have your Bible. Uh, But for this time, I don't want you to, to read along as I read the passage. I just want you to listen and see what you hear. See what you see as you hear the words. Now, when we start doing the sermon, I'm going to encourage you to look at your Bible and to follow along in the, in the passage. But just for this reading, don't look down. In fact, you could even close your eyes if you want to. What do you see? Now, hear God's Word. I'm going to read chapter 1 to you again. And then next week we're going to take off. Uh, We're not going to repeat any of the uh, readings. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things which must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, even to all he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Greetings to the seven churches, John, from Asia. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and was and is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To Him who loves us, and freed us from our sins by His blood, and made us a kingdom of priests, to His God and Father, to Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who was and is and is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos. On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. His hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was shining like the sun in its full strength. And when I saw him, I fell down at his feet as though I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Fear not. 
I am Alpha and Omega. I died. I died, but behold, I live. And I have the keys of death and hell. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. You know, I, uh, I don't know about you, but I'm becoming all the more dependent upon uh, Google Maps to get anywhere. Uh, thank God for Google Maps. You can find almost anything. So I put my address in Google Maps and I put the island of Patmos on the other end. <laughs> and I asked Google Maps to get me from my front door to the island of Patmos. And it said to me, some of you may know <laughs> what it said, it says you can't get there from your front door. Not if you drive or walk or take a bus or any of that. You can fly. It takes over 20 hours to fly. There are stops all over the earth to get there because it's way out in the middle of the Aegean Sea. And it will cost about $6,000 to get there. And so I said, eh, I'm not going to go. I think I'll stay in El Paso. It's a very small little island in the Aegean Sea, right off the coast, the west coast of uh, Turkey. And you can look for it in a map. It's shaped like a horse, like a seahorse. It's very small. It's uh, about seven and a half miles uh, tall and uh, about six miles wide. So it's a small island. And uh, so Travel and Leisure Magazine wrote this uh, guy. This is not the whole article. I just pulled this out. This is fascinating. Listen. I had to laugh. Patmos is off the coast of Turkey in the Aegean Sea, is the Aegean Sea's holy island. By one account, there are 365 churches and shrines on this little island. Tucked among the swooping hills and valleys and regular visitors are prone to lifting an unsteady hand and telling you with absolute conviction that the island vibrates. I agree. Now, this is a travel writer. Okay, he's a travel author. I agree that it does, although... That might have something to do with the late-night socializing, listen, of roving Europeans and Europeans, uh, Europeans and Americans, actors, shipping heirs, children of shipping heirs, art collectors in Patmos, historic mountaintop mansions. Strangely, for a place so studded with crosses and religious iconography, Patmos has become a haven, listen to this, a haven for the wealthy jet set. In recent decades, high season has become has begun to yield a scene that John might have appreciated. Greek Orthodox monks in thick black robes climbing up dusty trails while live, attractive, partied-out royals descend on motorbikes (laughs) for a morning on their yachts. In paradise, there's room for everyone. The island of Patmos is paradise. It's a secluded little place that the jet set of the Mediterranean and even some Americans have discovered. And they love going there because it is hard to get to. There's no airport there. You have to fly to Athens and then take a ferry. And the ferry is a little sketchy from what I see. I really did the work because I would like to go. Um, 
And so, I mean, it's very sketchy to get from Athens to uh, 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 Patmos. It's over eight hours on a ferry, and you never know. I mean, you can't, you know, it's not like in America where, you know, there's generally schedules and stuff. You just go and hope that you can get there. Why in the world would we study this book about a place and the vision that this man had today, when all these jet setters are there. I mean, it's, it's not anything like what John experienced. Why study Revelation? Well, I think John tells us it's because of things that were, are, and have been. And if you're here and you think, oh boy, I want to study Revelation because I want to find out how the end comes. Well, you will find out a little bit about how the end comes and all of that. But what the book of Revelation is really about, it's really about things that have been, things that are, and things that will come. So you're going to enter into a world, and believe me, it is a bizarre and complicated world, but at the same time, Revelation, I think, and this is just my opinion, I think it is one of the simplest and clearest presentations of the gospel that you will ever read once you know how to read it. Once you look at it, and I'm going to show you what I think is the right way to look at it. You don't have to agree. Uh, we'll do a Q&A afterwards. I'm going to try to do that every week so that you have questions, you can come. But it, we do have up here strategy. This is what I did last week. You can pick one of these up. And I think this may help you. Uh, Revelation is meant to be understood. Secondly, it is filled with symbolism. And the symbolism is not a puzzle, something that you've got to puzzle out. The symbolism is based on heavily on Old Testament scriptures. So as you, the more familiar, as, as Herman said in Sunday school this morning, the more familiar you are with the Old Testament, the, the better you're going to understand the book of Revelation. And I'm going to do my very best to show you where John was coming from with all of these visions. The Holy Spirit was inspiring him to write this. And He's got an entire world of, of Old Testament that he's thinking about and that is in his blood. It's in his bones. And that's what you're hearing coming out. And if you get that, the book of Revelation becomes something that you do have to work at, but you can understand, okay? There's a lot of symbolism. There's a context. There's a historical context. That's John's world, but there's also this scriptural context I just mentioned, the Old Testament. There's a thing in the book of Revelation, and you don't have to buy this. I'm going to try to convince you that it's there. I think once you see it, you cannot unsee it. But a lot of people will take the book of Revelation as 22 chapters, and they just read it through chronologically, like it's just a running chronology. But if you look at it carefully, John is writing in what we call cycles. He's, he sees a picture, okay? Uh, chapter 6 through chapter 8, verse 1, minus chapter 7. Just very quickly. Take out chapter 7 and read chapter 6 and 8-1. Take out all of 7, because that's an interlude. It's just a a parenthesis, if you will. And that's the first cycle. And you see it and you go, oh my goodness, wow. And then you see it again and again and again. And each time, John is giving you a shot, a picture uh, of something that's happening. And then he goes over here a few chapters later and it's a different picture. In fact, in 8 verse 2, he picks up the same picture but from a different angle. Over here, he's talking about six seals over here, he's talking about six trumpets. Same time period, same chronology. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Some of you will probably thank me for that. Some of you will say, why did you do this to me? I thought I had it all figured out. Um, I've been watching late night TV on Christian TV, and I, I, got, I figured it out. And that's the worst place you can go to find out what's going on in Revelation. There is a structure, but it's notoriously difficult. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you what it, what it is. It's notoriously difficult for Westerners. Anybody in the rest of the world, in the ancient Near East particularly, they would have picked that up and they would go, oh, yeah, I got it. Okay, move on. They would have had trouble with other parts of it. 
but the structure they would have got it. We don't get it because we want to read it in line, but it's cycling, okay? Uh, and then we're going to ask some questions, and you can pick one of these up if you want. Here's just a few of the books. I forgot my box. I was going to bring them all. The stack is this high of books that I have consulted. Uh, some really good ones, some not so good. But anyway, I'll let you, I'll put them up here. You guys can peruse them. Just don't take them. Stealing is a sin. You can look, you can touch, you can admire, but you may not take them. If you want to borrow one, we'll see about it. So, we're going to ask three questions every week. Here they are very quickly. This is your outline. You write it down. Once you know it, it's there every week. What do we see? What did we just see in these verses? Why are we seeing it? That's the second question we're going to ask. Why did John write this? Why is he even bothering putting this on paper? What, or papyrus or whatever. And thirdly, who do you see? Because in every scene you're going to see somebody. And I want to make sure that you see who John wants you to see and what the text says that you should see. Alright, what do we see? In these first few verses, 4-9, through now you can look at your text. Look at what you see. What you should have seen right off the bat is you should have seen Almighty God, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We didn't just invent the Holy Trinity. It's in your Bible and it is there over and over and over again. Now I can't explain the Holy Trinity. Nobody can. It is not a cloverleaf. It is not an ice cube. It is not an egg. It's not all those terrible, terrible examples that they use in Sunday school. It's incomprehensible what the Holy Trinity is. God Himself is incomprehensible. But Trinity is a way in which we can apprehend what He means. Maybe not comprehend, but at least apprehend. That we have God in three persons, but one being, one essential being, 100%. Jesus was 100% God, 100% man. Now, that in and of itself causes us problems, but it just is. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are equal in power and majesty and all of that. But they are different persons. But they are one being. They share the same essence. And I would refer you to uh, Google. Google Chalcedonian, the Chalcedon formula. And you'll see what the Chalcedonian fathers said the Trinity was. And you see it in verse 4. From Him who is and was and is to come. He's quoting several Old Testament Scriptures there talking about who God is, and from the seven spirits before the throne of God. He's not saying there are seven Holy Spirits. There's one Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is expressed with this number seven, which I told you last week means completeness and perfection. And so you see that, see the number seven used? There's sevens, there's tens, there's threes, there's six, six, sixes. Only crazy numbers. And we'll get into all that. It is, it's fascinating. Fascinating. The second thing you see is we see ourselves. Look what he says. He defines who you are. This should thrill your soul. If this is not the gas in your engine that moves your life along, folks, you're going to struggle being a Christian. In fact, Christianity, I would be the first to say, is the worst religion possible if you're going to go out and choose a religion, choose anything but Christianity, unless you're willing to take this next statement and just drive it daily, every day of your life, down into your bones. If you do that, you become a different person. You know what the Bible calls it? It says you'll become born again. Look, don't let the Baptists have all the fun. Presbyterians believe in being born again. Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, or you know, Eastern Orthodox. I was Eastern Orthodox. They believe in born again, Roman Catholic. All Christianity believes in a new birth. And they all believe this. That's the great thing about it. We all agree. 
on something <laughs> for once. Look at verse 5. He defines who we are. He loves us. He freed us from, his, from our sins by His blood. And He made us a kingdom of priests to His God. What that means is there is, listen, 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 there is nothing, nothing that can ever separate you from God once you believe it. Once you say, I need freed from my sins. I can't do it. They are crushing me. I'm enslaved. I'm in chains of bondage. I need freedom. I need this blood of Jesus. I've got to have it. And once you take that in, He makes you something. He makes you a kingdom of priests, male and female. We all get to be priests to God. And what that means is you live in His presence. Listen, please, every moment of your life, you cannot sin your way out of God's presence. And you can't ingratiate yourself any greater to God by your good works. Not that those things don't matter. Sin is odious to God. He wants you to stop it, stop it, stop it. And your good works can't get you any closer. He has taken you in and made you His own. And if you say to yourself, well then, I'll just sin up a storm. I can do whatever I want. Then you don't understand the blood of Jesus. And if at the same time you say, well, you know, I've had five days in a row of good devotions, prayer, and I'm doing really good. I'm getting closer. You don't understand the blood of Jesus. Nobody gets into God's presence except that He frees you by this blood. He changes who we are. So you see Almighty God. You see ourselves. You see, look at verses 7 and 8. You see an over... You should have seen an overwhelming victory. These verses come directly out of the Old Testament, particularly the book of Daniel. Behold, He's coming with clouds. Every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him. Now He jumps over and He grabs a verse from Zechariah. And all the earth will wail because of him. In other words, there's going to be, you're going to see scenes coming up in a few weeks. You're going to see scenes of horrific judgment coming on the earth that are terrifying. And people know that God is judging them, they know that it's God. And do you know what they do? Does anybody know? They lift their fist and they shake their fist in His face. They don't repent. Maybe you're like, I was like that. I don't know about you. Maybe, you've been, maybe you're the wonderfulest Christian in the world. I don't know. But most of us came that way. Most of us came shaking our fist at God and He just... Like a, you know, he just took our fist and put it down and wrapped us up and loved us into his kingdom. Yes? That's my experience. Maybe it's yours. But you see an overwhelming victory of God coming with the cloud. He's not going to come in a manger. He's not going to come as a baby. He's not coming in weakness anymore. He's not going to be an itinerant preacher. He's not going to be a carpenter. He's coming with flames of fire. I mean, it's frightening. Flames and swords and judgment. And oh my goodness, it's just crazy to judge the world. And if you've ever had any injustice done to you, and there has been no, no justice in this world. Think. Think of, you know, we live in the land flowing with milk and honey. You know, we barely have to lock our doors. I mean, we live in such complete, utter peace. But we've got military people in our church that have been over to the Middle East and they have seen the horrors 
done to human beings. Innocent human beings. Human beings that deserved nothing. And were murdered and raped and killed and their children slaughtered before their eyes. And after giving their last dime to some crook packed onto rubber boats and floated out into the middle of the Mediterranean to drown. And our hearts cry out for justice. When, O Lord, are You going to judge this kind of thing? Behold, He's coming with clouds. Every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the earth will wail because of Him. There is a day coming, a reversal, a day of great judgment. It's in the future. In fact, it's closer now, like I told you last week, it's closer now than when we started the sermon. It's moving. It's like a tsunami. It's like a tidal wave. It started the day Jesus rose from the dead. There was an explosion in the cosmos that is continuing to this day and Christ is on His way. How long it takes, we don't know. Because He's full of mercy and love. He wants as many people to repent and believe the Gospel as possibly will. Yes? Amen, Presbyterians? I know it's hard to do that in church because we don't want to get too excited. You know. Get excited about that. That He's coming to judge the world in righteousness. He's not going to make any mistakes. And then finally, the thing you should have seen in this first section, and it's in verse 9, you should have seen something that should trouble you. And it is troubling. You should see something we've called, and for 15 years I've been introducing this theological thing to you and I want you to write it down somewhere because it is very important. Look, I will, say, I will go so far as to say that unless you understand this, Christianity as, as a faith, as a religion, makes no sense. And it's this, what we call, what theologians have called the already not yet. The already not yet. It's the fact that the tribulation that is going on in this world started, well, we could say it started with Adam and Eve, but let's, let's keep it to the context of Revelation. It started when Jesus uh, died and, and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father till today and will continue until He comes back. So already not yet, that, that thing you should really drive down into your Christian life is all that period of time between the first and second comings of Jesus. And listen to this and listen closely because this, this will solve a lot of perplexing questions about the end time, the last days which are these days, those same days, the great tribulation. Look what John says. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. In Greek, he uses the uh, definite article. He says the tribulation. And there's another couple times where you see the word the tribulation. And what John is referring to is this period of time that we live in now between the two advents of Christ. This is the great tribulation. Now, Look, I understand that there are authors and, and there are even some scholars who say, no, 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 there's going to be a seven-year period of great tribulation. And look, if you want to embrace that, I, I'm not going to fuss with you. I'm going to make my case for what I believe the Bible is teaching us, just coming straight, because the great tribulation is not used anywhere in the Bible. And so what possibly could John mean when he says the tribulation? And when he talks about saints who are being killed during a period of great tribulation, 
And he's talking about that period of time being the period of church, the church history between the two advents. What can he possibly be talking about? Unless, unless we start to impose some other idea in there from outside. And I'm not going to do that. And I hope you will at least be open to the idea that these days, John is saying, is the tribulation. This is the tribulation, depending on where you live. El Paso, Texas, you're living, we are living in milk and honey. Yes? Can you all agree? You know, I don't care what your financial situation is. It's better than most people in the world. You know, we're already thinking about where we're going to have lunch today. I am. I'm barely able to keep focus on my notes here. Where am I going for lunch? Nobody's going to ever persecute you in America for being a Christian. Don't let anybody scare you and say, oh, they're going to come after us. No, that's naive. They're not coming after us. We're always going to be okay here, at least during our lifetime. Maybe in two or three more lifetimes, but not now. But you don't have to go far to get persecuted. You can get on an airplane and go and get persecuted. And it can be very disconcerting. Why? Because suffering, what the already not yet tells us is this. And look, folks, I've been a Christian a long time since I was 18 years old. And I have wondered why? Why? We have our dear pastor up in Alamogordo. He's 45 years old. He's got 10 children. He's, gonna, you know, he's very sick. He may die. And you have friends. And you're, you know, I've gone through diseases. You've gone through, you know. You have maybe had highs and lows. You've, you've wondered if, is, is any, how do you make sense of suffering? And let me tell you something else that, Herman pointed out this morning, we, we tend to want to absorb into our thinking cliches that I think are very harmful. And here's one of them. Sometimes the kind of suffering that John is going to describe in the book of Revelation, particularly the suffering that the people of his world that he was thinking about in these letters, the kind of suffering that they were experienced, there was no reason. Are you listening? We want to use a Christian cliche and say, oh, there's a reason for that suffering. And we try to find out what it is. And we're tormented because we want there to be some reason for our suffering. What is the great book on suffering in the Bible? The great book. The massive book. What is it? The book of Job. And if anywhere in the Bible there should have been one, one sentence, just one, God, why couldn't you give us one? I'm serious. One sentence. You could have just given us a sentence and told us why Job suffered. Silence. Not a word. And so don't try to to soft-pedal suffering, folks, by saying, well, there must be some reason. You know what? This world is full of just plain old black evil. Yes? And some of it has no reason. There is no reason in the world for what happened to an entire population of people that lived on the, the, the Yazidi people who lived on that mountain. Not a reason other than pure black evil. Yes? You can try to find reasons and God's going to tell you, He's going to pat you on the head and say, you're not smart enough ever to know the reason for all of this. And look, how do you know that? Because there are saints, you're going to see them in a couple, probably in a few weeks, you're going to see an altar. And underneath this altar, I don't know how God fit them all under there, but they're all there. All these people that have been martyred. And you know what they're crying? In fact, the text said they are shouting. You know what they're shouting? Anybody? 
How long, O Lord, before You bring vengeance upon those that have slain us? How long? Quoting Habakkuk, quoting Psalm 13, quoting a couple other places in the Old Testament. How long? The Bible never soft-pedals suffering. It's bad. And sometimes there's just no reason. It's just plain evil. What we do know is God has said that all things that happen, He will work out for your good. But He never ever promises that we're going to find and know a reason. Not even here in this book. We are living in a time of great tribulation, folks. And tribulation is woven in with also the joys and the beauty and the glory of this world. You You have both the horrors that we see on the news at night, and then at the same time, the story of this man. I don't know if you all been following the Florence storm, you know, over there in North South Carolina, and it's hitting them, and all these stories are coming out. A woman, an Hispanic woman, who cleaned homes for a living, is leaving this island in her car. And she notices a family, well-to-do family, who vacations on the island, and she cleans the house across the street. Well, their fancy car is broken down with all their stuff they can't get off, and they're walking back to try to get help, but everything's closed. you know what this woman did? A house-cleaning woman. You know what she did? Anybody read the story? She put them in her car, took them to her little house, gave them the keys to her second car, helped them load her car, and said, Go. We don't even know you, the guy says. No, I've, I've seen you, she said. I've seen you across the street when I come visit Mrs. So-and-so's house to clean her house. I know you. Give me your phone number. I give you my phone number. You see both the glories and the beauty of mankind and the horror. And that's the tension that Christians are meant to live in. God has called us to live in that kind of tension. And in order to live as a Christian and make any sense of your life, you have to be able to embrace both and rejoice with those that rejoice. Weep with those that weep. And live your life in community, understanding that some people are going to be dancing and singing and you can dance and sing and others are going to be suffering and you need to enter that suffering. Yes? Do you see it? That's what He wants you to see. He wants you to see Himself, Almighty God. He wants you to see ourselves blood-bought, blood-owned, freed kings, priests before our God. He wants you to see His victory that He will. Don't take vengeance yourself. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. We trust Him, yes? We trust Him to make things right in this world. And we do everything in our power while we live in this world to make things right. We strive for social justice. We strive for the good of mankind. We strive for beauty. The church should be all about that without losing its fire for the Gospel. Yes? Can we do two things at once, folks? Can we care for the poor and preach the Gospel? Please, somebody. Yes! You can do both. And you can do both well. The church at its best has been the best ever to do this. Okay. Why are we seeing it? John explains, look at verse 10. He says, he is encouraging patient endurance expressed. This is very important. Patient endurance expressed through worship. Corporate worship to be sure. Here is where we come and gather with all our heartache and our pain and our joys together. Knowing that we're not alone in suffering, right? This is where you find that out in community, 
on Sunday morning, some of it, some of it on Monday night, some on Thursday night, discipleship groups, some at the ladies, when the ladies get together, some, whatever venue you happen to grab onto in the church, or maybe just in your friendships with those in the church, that's where you're going to see it happen. Patient endurance through worship. Corporate worship to be sure, but also personal worship. We teach our journey guys how to do personal worship. And this is not... Look, when he says patient endurance, he is not talking about simply gritting your teeth and bearing it. Although... Although we all have to do that, yes... Sometimes you just have to grit your teeth and hang on for dear life because things can get crazy and you wonder if there's anything that's going to hold you in place. That's why you need the church. You need to be honest here of all places. Get rid of the church masks, yes? Come in here and say, I'm hurting today, I need you. And have somebody come and hold you if you need that. But don't hide in church. Let Christ the King be a place of safety for anyone that is struggling. So it's not about just gritting your teeth. And it's not fatalist. It's not inshallah. It's not, well, whatever God wills. And Christians love to do that. And I've told you, I, I, don't, like, I don't like to hear people say, you know, I'll say to folks, and some of you know I'm going to scold you a little bit, but I get to you, I'm the pastor. Some of you, you know, I'll say, I'll see you next week. And you'll say to me, what will you say to me back? God willing. Stop it! That's just Christian fatalism. Oh, God willing, I guess I've done, you know, the, the, the creek doesn't rise or whatever other crazy stuff we attach at the end. I know, I know that if, of course, God willing, of course, of course. But why not say, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing you too next week? I mean, that, that's faith, right? I believe I'm going to be here next week. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm kind of poking at you. Look, don't, don't, don't be a fatalist. Christians are very good at falling into fatalism. Don't do that. Although we'll struggle with it. We're not going to what? Patient endurance. Express through worship. Personal worship and corporate worship together in the church community. And finally, very quickly, I don't want to go too much longer, but who do you see? You've seen what do you see? What is, what is John, what's this picture you've seen? And why do you see it? He wants you to patiently endure. He wants you to get in there and fight. You say, I'm not going to quit. I don't understand. I don't know the reason. I acknowledge that. I accept it. Uh, I may never know the reason. Job never knew the reason why he suffered, but he hung in. He had lots of questions for God, and God had a lot of questions for him at the end. But read your Psalms, folks. They are filled with lament. 75, I think Herman mentioned it this morning. 75, 80% of the Psalms are laments and complaints. David, David the king said this to God. I love this. He said to God, I'm paraphrasing. He says to God, are you going to kill me? Are you going to let me die? I don't know. His enemies were after him. They, they wanted to kill him. They wanted to dethrone him. To dethrone him didn't mean that he gets to go and retire to Martha's Vineyard. Uh, to retire from the presidency of Israel meant off with your head, you know. Right? So he wasn't going to get to go retire to Martha's Vineyard and fly around and criticize the current president. Okay? He was going to die. And he says this, amazing. Are you going to let me die? Are you going to let my enemies kill you? Who is going to praise you if I die? Is the grave going to praise you if I'm in there, my bones? You better keep me alive so you have somebody to praise you. Now that's a man he didn't say, oh, well, it doesn't matter. Inshallah, whatever happens, I, you know, God wills. I mean, he kills me. He's got all of you wonderful people. David didn't care about you at all. He said, no, what about me? If I die, the grave's not going to praise you. You better keep me alive. This is a man that knew God. 
Do you see that? I want to be him. Wow. Who do you see? Who did David see? Who did John see? Who does he want you to see? Look at verses 12 through 16. We don't have time to go into all of the details. The details are amazing. But he sees one. The thing I want you to, to focus on here is he sees one like a son of man in the middle of the lampstands. And he already told us the lampstands are the churches. So here you have in the middle of his churches, one like the Son of Man. Now, you may have heard that Son of Man means Jesus' humanity. Son of God means Jesus... Or or Son of Man means Jesus' humanity. Son of God means Jesus' divinity. Right? Any of you heard that before? Nobody wants to raise their hand because you don't want me to do my Chuck thing on you. Cowards. We've, we've been taught by, by certain people that Son of God means Jesus' divinity. Son of man means Jesus' humanity. But it's exactly the opposite in the Bible. The Bible describes Son of man as this divine figure who you see in uh, the book of Daniel and elsewhere, a couple places, but the Son of Man is a divine figure who comes down from heaven to save mankind, and He is considered divine. And that's why Jesus, when He referred Himself to Son of Man, all the rabbis got it. What did they do when He called Himself Son of Man? They picked up stones to kill Him because He was blaspheming. Now, Son of God was a divine. Son of God was a human designation that referred to a human being who was either adopted by, or later on, and you'll see this in the book of Revelation, where the the Roman Empire started to deify its Caesars, its Kaisers, yes? They began to deify them. Started a little bit with Nero, but it came to full expression under Domitian who was exactly at the time of John's writing this, Domitian, the emperor. And they started building temples to Domitian because he was called a god. He was called son of God. A son of God. Okay? What John sees is God himself in the person of his son standing in the middle of his churches with all the accoutrements of the Old Testament imagery of God himself. Flames of fire, snow, hair, you know, all this imagery comes right out of the book of Isaiah, right out of the book of Daniel, and right out of the the book of Ezekiel. You see it all coming into expression in one person, in Jesus Christ. And John's reaction when he sees this, he falls on his feet like he was dead. You know, folks, how in the world are you expected? This is, this is why who you see is so important. How are you going to live in this world with all of its craziness and all of its suffering and all of the injustice and all the crazy things that happen? How are you going to manage? How do you make your way through? And I would argue that John is telling us right here, right now, he's saying, when I fell at his feet, he reached down and he touched me and he said, what? Don't be afraid. Why? I am the first and the last. I am Alpha and Omega. A few minutes ago it was God who said that. Now Jesus is saying, I am first and last. I am the living one. I died. But behold, I have the keys of death and Hades. What he's saying to you and me, folks, is he made this journey. We even have a hymn. He made the journey from 
from above down to the earth. He came down, Dr. Michael Williams at Christmas always reminds you, he says the trajectory of the gospel is from heaven to earth. Jesus did come down. John knew that he was a babe in a manger, that he was a weak carpenter, an itinerant preacher, that he had nothing, that it was Christmas. John was there. He saw him up on the cross with not a stitch of clothes. With all his followers gone, but John, John's there with his mother and and the other ladies. And they're there and he sees it. He knows that Jesus came from heaven to earth. And he's just told us we were cleansed by his blood. And now this one is saying to you, you have nothing to fear. Your life is in my hands. See, I'm holding the seven stars, the seven angels of your church. We'll talk about that next week. I'm holding them. Nothing can touch you. Do you have sorrow in your life? Do you have pain in your life? Do you have grief? Your marriage is in trouble. Maybe your kids are off the rails. I don't know what it is. Your job. Maybe it's your health. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you're in high school. You know, high school is hell on earth. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Fear not. I hold the keys. Me. Jesus. Will you trust Him? That's what John wants. That's what Jesus wants. And that's what this church, what we want for you. We want you to hold on to Christ. The living Christ who holds the keys. Let's pray. Father, uh, we love you and life can come crashing in. The tribulation can come in on us like a flood and no one knows better than that than you who had his very life swept away and no one, no one could keep you from that cross. So Father, please, For the sake of your Son who gave his life for us, I pray that you will comfort us in our fears and our tribulations. Help us, save us, have mercy on us, O God. According to your grace, we pray. Amen.